You are listening to the Murray Hills Church Podcast. To learn more about Murray Hills Church, including our gathering times and how to connect with us, visit us online at murrayhills.com. So good to be with you here this morning. Uh, Just so everybody will know, we are all here because Jesus Christ has brought hope into our lives. Amen? We have a hope for the future. We have a hope for today. We have the Word of God which leads us and guides us. And everything that I'm going to share today has something to do with the fact that God has looked into the needs of those who are poor and He has... uh, put things in place so that we can know what our portion might be in helping with that. We're going to talk about the great benefits of that also. So let's just bring it around to what we're talking about this morning, uh, poverty. Now I'm here this morning to tell you everything you ever wanted to know about poverty. That's a joke. (laughs) It just can't be done, can it? Matter of fact, when most people hear the word poverty, the first word that pops into their mind is uh, overwhelming. And there's just no way to cover it in 30 minutes. So, in the time that we have today, I would like to share with you, in hopes that it will be helpful, two approaches to poverty under two topics. One is the government's attempt to eradicate poverty. And the other is the church's attempt to address poverty. They're radically different things. But first, since God's Word is the ultimate truth in all areas of life, let's look at what the Lord has to say about helping the needy in the Old Testament. If you will, if you have your uh, Bibles with you or your devices, if you would turn to Isaiah 58. I had a marker there and I've lost it. There it is. And I think on the screen you're going to see this is not these are not the this is not the actual scripture that you're seeing on the screen. This is a list. This is a generalization of what it says, and a list of the things that God requires. I'm going to read the actual scripture for you, and you can follow along uh, in your Bible if you like. At verse six it says, "Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen?" That ha- Does that happen to you all these days? You're getting ready to go somewhere and you reach in your pocket and three of these fall out? Does that happen to you? I'm just doing this because I want to set a timer on myself. Okay. And I said it after I was four minutes into it, so we're going to go 34 minutes instead of 30. Okay. Now, we'll try to wrap it up in time. Uh, is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? Is what the Lord says in Isaiah 58. And what he's about to say, we know that it's the Lord that's saying it because at the end of the chapter, he ends it with, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so we know that God is putting an exclamation point on these things and saying that it's important to me that you know this and that you follow uh, what this says. Now, fasting is not just the kind of fasting I have chosen. In the context of where they were at that time, Uh, In those days, people fasted as a regular religious exercise uh, where we would go to church 
they would go to the synagogue, but they would fast. And, and, uh, and so it was something that they did regularly. I'm going to back up to verse 4 for just a second and say that here is God, here, here's what God says to the way that they're fasting. He said, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other. Can you fast today and expect to be heard on high? So he's saying, I'm not pleased with the way that you're fasting. You're doing religious exercises, but you're not doing my will. And so then he says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. Now we're talking in this series about love and justice. And uh, he says that we should loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now, he doesn't just stop there. After that, he gives a list of the benefits of any people who will do what he just said. And we're not going to look at that right now. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But God never asks us to do something and then says, I just want you to do it to do it. There are benefits and blessings to those who pour out their lives to help others. Turn over to Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, if you would. And there it says, again, this is a, a summarization, but what the, script, the, the scripture actually says is, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors, pastor, pastor, and teachers, teachers, teachers. Now, if there's an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist here, hello to you too. They're not as well known in our uh, culture today as they were back then. Uh, and he has given those to prepare God's people for works of service. In other words, helping the needy. So if any pastor needs to know what your calling is, is to prepare God's people for works of service. If, if any Christian leader wants to know what a major part of your calling in the body of Christ is, it's to prepare God's people for works of service. Prepare God's people to know how to help other people. And I think our pastor is doing that, and that's an awesome thing. Uh, there are also benefits there that we'll come back to in just a little bit. I also want to give you some resources. I want to get into a message here in just a second, but I want to give you some resources before we do. Uh, that if you want to go deeper, like I said, we can only skim the surface. If you want to go deeper, I highly recommend The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olasky. It was written in 1992, and it has uh, basically become the blueprint for compassionate conservatism, and it was the blueprint for the faith-based initiatives of the Bush administration. Uh, he goes back to the pre-revolutionary war. He goes back to the founding of the country and how the poor were um, addressed by the church in those days and as we go through different generations and how it changed and then what happened with the launching of the Great Society after the Great Depression. And it's just fascinating. And uh, he has great insights into it. So if you want to read that, you can look that up and, uh, and find it. Now these other four books that I have, I'm actually going to leave these in our library. 
in the resource center in case you want to uh, grab hold of one of these. When Helping Hurts, this is by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickard, and uh, the main takeaway of this book is uh, what actually happens when you just throw money at a people problem, what actually happens, and how it can actually be hurtful worse than more than helpful. Uh, it also speaks of the value of developing relationships with the people that you're trying to help and how to develop systems of operation that will uh, promote those relationships. So this will be in our resource center if you want to uh, grab it. The next three books, let's see if I can do it that way. Hmm, no, I can't. Uh, understand uh, A Framework for Understanding Poverty is the most eye-opening book I have ever read when it comes to explaining poverty, why it is, how it is, what it does to people, how to address it if you are not in poverty and you're trying to uh, reach out to someone who is in poverty and why it is that y'all think differently and what to do about that. Of course, everything is under the uh, heading of consider all others to be better than yourselves. And if we're doing that at the get-go, no matter how we're trying to help people, then things are going to work out kind of okay. But it's really awesome to have a book like this. Now these, I have the three up there because they're actually the same book in, uh, in, 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 in what is in the book, but they're addressing three different communities. Uh, and, and if you're starting in from an educational standpoint or from a community standpoint or a church standpoint, you'll read a different book to get the most out of it. Uh, understanding poverty is uh, addressed towards educators. Bridges out of poverty is addressed towards uh, businesses and community leaders. And what every church member should know about poverty is addressed to what? Churches. Churches. There you go. Try that again. Every, what every church member should know about poverty is addressed to, ah, y'all are quick learners. It's awesome. So these will be in the resource center. Now then, whoo, seven minutes and 33 seconds. I love y'all, by the way. I hope you love me. What? What? What'd you say? See, I have needs too, see? We all have needs. <laughs> That's part of poverty, as a matter of fact. But anyway. All right, first, our government's attempt to eradicate poverty. In 1964, the U.S. government declared war on poverty in America. The effort was led by then-President Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was backed by the House and Senate legislation entitled the Equal Opportunity Act was passed and the war on poverty began. The government war on poverty began. The act formed the Office of Economic Opportunity or the OEO and the OEO's purpose was to administer the local application of federal funds that were targeted against poverty. At that time, President Johnson's, and this is important, stated goal was that poverty be eventually eradicated from the United States and that those who were now poor would, 
through government help and assistance, come to a place of self-sufficiency. Well, 2014 was the 50th anniversary of the Equal Opportunities Act. Now, November of 2014, my beloved Robin and I were in Washington, D.C. for a meeting of the annual conference on poverty hosted by the, by, by the uh, excuse me, the Heritage Foundation. Their focus that year was poverty in America and what it looks like today as, to compare, as compared to when the war on poverty began. Now, just so you know, Robin and I don't uh, usually every November jump on a plane and fly up to D.C. for the Heritage Foundation's uh, conference on poverty. That year, Murray United Ministries uh, had been selected by World Magazine as one of four nonprofits nationwide that were highly effective in helping the needy in their communities. And so Heritage Foundation had asked us to come up, all expenses paid, hallelujah, to the conference and be presented World Magazine's Hope Award for effective ministry at the conference. So that's why we were there. But we met Senator Tim Scott from uh, South Carolina. He was the keynote speaker that year. And in his speech, he gave us an update on how the war on poverty was going. So 50 years later, here it is. Now keep in mind, these are the figures from 2014. After 50 years, annual welfare spending is 16 times greater than it was when the war on poverty began. Now these are all uh, adjusting for, uh, what do you call it? Inflation. In 1966, there were 40 means-tested welfare programs, and in 2014, there were over 80 means-tested welfare programs, providing cash, food, housing, and medical care to the poor and the near-poor Americans. As of 2014, the U.S. government had spent some $22 trillion on means-tested welfare Programs. Again, just adjusted for inflation, that is three times more than the nation has spent on all military wars, military wars combined since the American Revolution. Now, after all that spending, what percentage of the population of our country has risen above the poverty line? 1966 poverty rate was 15%. 2014 poverty rate, 14.8%. So minus 0.2 of 1% for $22 trillion. I got to tell you, though, the real test of whether the war on poverty is being won or whether it is not is the originally stated goal. Has that been reached? The original goal was individual self-sufficiency, individuals being able to come off welfare programs and stand on their own. But quite the opposite had happened. Instead of a rising rate of self-sufficiency, what we see today is a population that's dependent upon government income, dependent upon government housing, dependent upon government food, dependent upon government health care. Instead of government self-sufficiency, what $22 trillion has produced is government dependency. I heard an 
amen out there. What can we do? What can we do? Well, here's an eye-opener for you. It's not just money that keeps people from rising out of poverty. It's not just money that keeps people from breaking the shackles of dependency. In that book, one of those books, what every member, church member should know about poverty, Dr. Payne writes, would you put that slide up on uh, resource, please? <clears throat> Anybody want solutions? Okay. Typically, poverty is thought of in terms of financial resources only. However, the reality is that financial resources, while extremely important, do not explain the differences in the success with which individuals leave poverty, nor the reasons that many stay in poverty. The ability to leave poverty is more dependent upon other resources than it is on financial resources. Each of these resources plays a vital role in the success of an individual. And you see the different resources there. Financial is at the top. Emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, support systems, relationships, role models, and knowledge of hidden rules. Now, if you want to know about hidden rules, we need to have a class or something because that is fascinating. And it'll, it, it sheds so much light into why we feel we're different if we come from different socioeconomic levels in this world. Uh, but everything that I see there, I believe, is supplied quite abundantly by a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and by a relationship with God's people, which is where the church comes in. Now, here's the thing. Let's not be too hard on the government, okay? Uh, over those 57 years, the standard of living for those under poverty has risen. Uh, now, most people who are under the poverty line, they have a house to live in. They have a roof over their head. They have uh, food when they need it. Most have air conditioning. Uh, most have, many have widescreen TVs. They have things that people wouldn't have dreamed of having when they were in poverty 57 years ago. But the real tragedy of all this just may be they have those things, but that's all they'll ever have. You see what I'm saying? There's a lid that's placed, and you have enough to exist, but how about if you want to thrive? How about if you want to break loose and do great things in your life and, or in your, in your family's life? There's a lid uh, that is what my wife calls golden handcuffs. Uh, they, they, give you, they give you enough to live, but they keep you in a place because of the way it's set up, I'm afraid to say. They keep you in a place to where you can't rise above that. So, like I said, the real tra tragedy may be the church. Uh, here's what happened. Now, pull your toes in or they're going to get stepped on here, okay? For about 40 years after the war in poverty was declared, the church largely abdicated 
the responsibility of taking care of the poor to the government. If the church had remained in the mix, coming alongside the needy, showing the compassion of Christ, and extending a hand up, it's very likely that the poverty rate would have been much lower and self-sufficiency would have been attained by many, many, many more. I think I can prove that. Listen to this. Over the last 10, 15 years, a groundswell of non-government, non-profit Christian ministries has risen to the challenge of helping those in need. These non-profits are very good at actually bringing individuals and families into a state of self-sufficiency. And listen to this. Since 2014, the poverty rate has dropped from 14.8% to 10.5%. Now, since in that period, there's been little change in the government's approach to the problem, I think we can assume that these hands-on nonprofits had something to do with that drop. Let me give an example of how that works. His name is John. He's about 28 years old, maybe 30. I never ask, but just looking at him. And we were giving him transportation a few years back to uh, the doctor and back, to uh, health department and back, to uh, Centerstone and back. It seemed like everywhere we went had something to do with medical issues. Now, he was living with his fiancee, and she was working, and so there was income in the family, but it wasn't coming or in the, under the roof, but uh, it wasn't coming from him. Well, he's a nice guy. I got to know him a little bit. Here's where the relationship part comes in. When you're in the car, van, truck with somebody for 20 minutes to go somewhere and 20 minutes back, and you do it about five times, well, you get to know each other. You kind of, you know, check each other out a little bit, and uh, it, that was happening, and I'd already given him some uh information about what God had done in my life, you know, without stepping on him too much and saying, here's what you ought to do. We don't do that. We say, here's what God's done for me and just kind of leave it there and see how the Holy Spirit uses that. But anyway, it's one day and he's, uh, he's just gotten back from the health department. He is all excited. He's, man, it's great. I said, what's going on? And he said uh, to me, well, I'm a step closer to getting my disability. And I turned to him and I said, by the way, disability is welfare now. Everything shifted over into the disability bracket pretty much. And he was about to get his disability, he said. And I looked at him and I said, well, I hope that doesn't happen. And he looked at me and said, why do you say that? See, that's what I was waiting to hear. Why do you say that? And there was a time before, I mean, I'd, I'd been doing this for a few years now, and there was a time I would have just gone through a list of stuff, but I said, man, it's sad. You will never have some of the things that I'm going to have in life. Why is that? And I just kept on with that. I said, you see that house that we're driving by right now, that really nice house? You'll never buy that house. See this new car that's going by right here? You'll never buy that new car. But I tell you what's really sad. Your kids 
are not going to have the great advantage of whatever it is that they see in life they'd like to do, they can go for it because you won't have the finances to help them do that. You'll be sitting on your porch with your disability. You'll be walking around with golden handcuffs. I didn't know if I was getting through to him or not, to tell you the truth of the matter. But it was the truth of the matter. So I was tr trying to tell him that. And I said, tell you something else that's sad. When you're old and you're sitting on that porch, you're going to watch cars driving by. Families are going on vacation. They're going down to Florida. They're going up to Canada. They're, you know, they're getting ready to go have a couple of weeks and take a break. And he said, you'll never do that. Your children will never do that. If all you have in life is my disability. He said, well, what should I do? I said, go to work. He said, my back hurts. I said, I went to work for five years with my back hurting. Go to work. Make an income. Have some money coming in. Show up on time. Be the best worker there. Man, in the culture we live in today, if you'll do that, just show up and be the best worker there. You'll be one of the most dependable ones on the payroll, and you'll be running the place before you know it. Get out there and make some money, man. And he got out of the van. I didn't know how, <laughs> I didn't know how he took any of that, really. Uh, I didn't see him again for a good long while, so I thought maybe I truly offended him. But one day, his uh, fiance's car broke down, and she needed to ride to work, work, and she called moms. And so I went to pick her up. I said, how's John doing? Oh, he's doing good. He's doing good. I said, what's he doing now? Well, John, when I had a conversation with him, was in November. And John had gone to UPS two days after we had that conversation and hired on as vacation, I mean, as holiday labor. Yeah. And he'd done such a good job that in February, nah, and this was March, in February, they hired him. They don't ever hire anybody full-time, full-time. You know what I'm saying? But he was, on, he was working every day at UPS. I said, well, how's he doing? She said, he's happier than he's ever been. I said, hallelujah, hallelujah. See, that's the thing that the church can bring to the mix. What we bring is relationship and compassion, the compassion of Christ. It happened with Brenda, too. Uh, Brenda, this is a few years back. Back, Brenda was on, uh, what do you call it, um, witness protection uh, plan. From, she came from up in Waverly, and evidently she was hanging out with some bad dudes up there. And they got busted, and she was going to testify against them, so they moved her down here so that she would be safe. And she was a nurse, so she was able to get work, but she didn't have anything, so she called moms to see if she could get a ride. And so we did that. And you have to understand the way that Brenda approached us was this. You know, I know that you're helping me, but I know you want to require something of me, and I know I need to act a certain way, and I'm not going to, so I'm not going to open up my life to you in any way whatsoever. But at that time, we had about 40 drivers, and that means that every day she went to work, just about, she was with a different Christian woman. <laughs> 
Some of them were young moms. Some of them were grandmoms. And man, they just melted her heart. She, did, she didn't have a chance. I mean, it was like they were just loving on her and praying for her and sometimes praying with her. And then after about three weeks, poof, she disappeared. And then about three months later, she called back. I don't guess y'all will give me a ride anymore because, you know, I just, I've done bad and all. And what had happened was, as soon as she got her first paycheck, she'd found a guy who would take an interest in her. She'd moved in with him. He had drained her dry because she, she was working. And then after she finally got up to here with it all, she left. And now she was out again, almost homeless. And she said, so I don't guess y'all, I said, no, come on, what, what, where do you need to go? Where do you need to go? You know? And so now we are at stage two of our relationship. It's all about relationship and showing compassion. And they see something that's so different than anything that they've ever seen before. So we actually went that cycle three times. I mean, twice that she disappeared. And the third time that we, now Peggy was one of our drivers back then. And see, our driver, I tell people when they're, involved with getting help from moms they get the full ministry of the holy spirit because there are some folks who are how much time have i got now, there are some folks that um, drivers that have the spiritual gift of mercy there are some folks who have the spiritual gift of uh, of helps there are some people who have great wisdom and insight there are some that have lived a long time they got a, you know and they just get it all you know, and she was getting that. But now Peggy, she was an evangelist. And Peggy said, Law, what you need to do is come to church with me and get Jesus in your life. And that's exactly the way she'd say it, too. And, and, of course, Peggy had formed a relationship with her, so she would hear that, you know. But she never would go. And on this third round, finally, Peggy brings it up again and says, What's keeping you from going to church? She said, all I got to wear is jeans. Now, that shows you how long it's been since she's been in church, right? <laughs> Peggy said, oh, don't worry about it. I got a pair of jeans. I'll put mine on and we can go. At that time, Peggy was going to Grace Nazarene, and Robin and I were going to New Life Church. And um, so that Sunday comes, and Peggy told me that she was going to take her to church. And our service was later than theirs. So she said afterwards, I would probably just come on over and say howdy. And so I'm at church. Our pastor, they get there a little bit late, but they hear the sermon. <clears throat> Our pastor teaches an evangelistic sermon, come to Christ. Gives the invitation. Nobody comes forward. So I'm here, well, okay, I'm going, okay. And then after church, Robin and I go back to talk with them and she said, I would have gone forward here, but I already did it over at Grace, and I got saved this morning. <laughs> and I didn't want to get saved twice in the same day. <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, Peggy was beaming, you know. And uh, that afternoon, it was Grace's uh, annual picnic out at the park. And Brenda went with Peggy to the picnic. And Peggy told me the next week, she said, Brenda was there about an hour and a half and just looking around. And finally, after about two hours, she said, 
I never knew that anybody could have fun without being drunk. That's where she came from. That was her family. That's what she learned as a child growing up. But because we're able to get in relation with her, and just she could be in the presence of believers long enough, she experienced what she never could have without that. So that's, that's the value of what the church could do. Amen? Amen. Would you start that loop uh, that we talked about? This is back to Isaiah 58, and it's uh, the uh, list of blessings to those who uh, do God's will. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, there it is. I'm going to have to talk really call, call, call fast right now, okay? Uh, the thing of it is, every one of you knows somebody that's poor. You remember the resource thing earlier? Everybody knows somebody that has an emotional need, physical need, you know, and, and you go, how can, what can I do? And let me just say this. Start with whoever is closest to you and consider them, consider their needs. If we can all get our minds off of ourselves and get our minds onto others and what their needs are, then we are contributing to the war on poverty. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. It's not our job to eradicate poverty. We'll, we'll never do it according to Jesus' own words. Our task is in our generation to address the poverty that we see before us, and that's what we will answer for according to the sheep and the goats. That's what we will answer for when we stand before the Lord. It won't be how much we knew, our theology, our ideology. It will be who we helped and who we did not help. You might want to think about the poor as maybe looking across your dinner table and seeing your child. Well, a child's not poor. Can they buy their own clothes? Are they providing their food? You know, uh, do they know where to go when you leave here and you need to get downtown to do something? No, without you, they are the poorest people that you know. So since you're the one who can pour into their poverty, pour all you've got, pour everything you've got. And, and then we have a driver right now who always takes her children with her when she's driving because she wants them to see what it's really like out there. So basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is an answer for poverty. And it does come from systems that people put in place. But it starts in our own hearts. Do I see people as somebody that I can help? I know a man that's lost his legs to diabetes. And the ice storm knocked a few uh, big branches off in his driveway. And his neighbor goes over, didn't say a word to the neighbor. He cut up that firewood, took, him over, took it over to his own fire pit and burned it up. He was addressing poverty because that man had a physical need. So you see what I mean. I have got to wrap this up. I'm so sorry. Uh, next time we'll have to do an hour and a half. And <laughs> uh, but uh, let's pray. And I hope this has been helpful. Uh, uh, there's so much more. There's so much more. But uh, basically at the core of it all is do I see people's needs and if we'll be that if we'll be that then our leaders will put together ways that we can do it together when you get home read the last part of Ephesians 4 I mean Ephesians 4 15 and 
peace and look at those benefits that God gives to a, a people who work together to help the needy. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.